From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we'll speak with University of South Carolina law professor Seth Stoughton about the recent high-profile violence that has engulfed the nation. And after that, North Carolina Representative Ed Haynes will join us for a political roundup. That's next on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Recently, the nation became privy to an unprecedented display of violence. The initial narrative, black men were killed by law enforcement. Video cameras caught Alton Sterling being shot at point-blank range in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The following day, headlines across the nation showed photos of Philando Castile dying in his car, the victim of a police shooting. But then the narrative changed. Less than 24 hours after Castile had been killed, five police officers were killed in Dallas, Texas, at the conclusion of a peaceful public demonstration. As I, along with many other Americans, sought to grapple with these latest developments, I ran across a wonderful op-ed penned by Seth Stoughton, law professor at the University of South Carolina, and I'm happy to have him on The Public Morality. One note, we taped this interview before the three officers were killed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, over the past weekend. Seth Stoughton, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much for having me. You recently wrote um, in the Washington Post, uh, an excellent article, by the way, that, Thank you. about the distrust that exists between black and blue, that, that it makes you afraid. What, what did you mean by that? Well, looking forward, I think, in order to solve some of the very long-standing problems that we've uh, encountered, that we're still encountering, we need people to come together. Now, that sounds very pithy, but nevertheless, it's true. We need these two communities, the police community and the black community, to find a common ground on which to build. And the distrust that we see um, undermines all of that. You do not want to come together and find common ground with someone or with a group of people who you do not trust and who you fear. And that's what I'm scared of. I'm scared that this pervasive environment of distrust and this pervasive environment of fear are going to effectively prohibit us from ever changing the environment that we're in. And and explain why, um, I know you alluded to it in your article, but explain why, in your view, we'll start with the the police, why the police um, are distrustful of the African-American community. Yeah, I think there are a couple of reasons. Probably the single biggest one is uh, violence against officers. Officers really believe that they are under attack and that groups like Black Lives Matter are either directly responsible for violence against officers or are generally supportive of violence against officers or are not criticizing violence against officers. They're not supporting officers' lives um, the way that the police community thinks that they should be. That's one reason. I think the other reason is a history of tense interactions with um, individuals in in black communities. Uh, Just as many people living in 
minority communities, and particularly black communities, have had bad interactions with the police, the police perspective is that those are also bad interactions for the officers. So that doesn't leave a lot of room for um, a, a better relationship. There's also some perceptions, I think, that are pretty broad in the police community about um, high crime in minority areas um, that they tend to, I think people tend to attribute to blackness in a way that's uh, logically mistaken, that's psychologically mistaken, but nevertheless, um, it affects the way that officers or anyone else thinks about interacting in black communities. So it's it's a complicated series of reasons, but I think that the distrust is unfortunately very real on, on that side of the equation as well. well. Well, then why don't we then flip it now to the other side of the equation and let's go from that perspective. Well, why do you, why is it in your view that the African-American community is distrustful of police? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is I think the reasons actually line up very nicely uh, or, or very not nicely. Yeah. Um, one, police violence, violence by officers. Now, I'm going to use the word violence in two different ways, because one is the most obvious, the killing and what have been, in at least some cases, the egregious and unjustified killings of black men, and particularly young unarmed black men, but also violence in sort of a broader sense, the um, abrasive, coercive treatment of many individuals in the black community at police hands. Uh, issuing orders instead of trying to earn cooperation, for example, demanding that black individuals um, defer to police authority far more often or in a different way than officers are perceived to interact in white communities. Now, that's all now, but there's also some historical context that I think we have to take into account. I, I was um, riding with someone to the airport recently, someone, a black gentleman who had grown up in Detroit in the 60s and early 70s. And he was telling me about some negative interactions with officers that really affected his perception of police. And I bring that up not to show that there's this historical artifact that, that modern policing is built on, although that's also true, but to bring up what he told his kids about interacting with the police. Growing up in his household, his kids didn't hear a lot of kind things about the police. They were warned against the police and taught how to keep themselves safe from the police. So, yes, there are negative interactions today, but we're also dealing with the effects of negative interactions of prior generations. And unfortunately, we have a number of prior generations that have bad uh, history, that have a, a toxic history with police interactions. Well, Seth, I mean, taking your two responses right there, um, it seems like we're at an intractable stalemate. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? I, I don't think we are, and this is where my optimism comes in. One thing that we know, and we've had, unfortunately, too many examples, but one thing we know about human character is that we can and we do come together, sometimes in the most tragic and often unforeseeable ways. I live in South Carolina now, and I'll be honest, I was terrified of the effects of the Dylan Roof shooting at the Emanuel Church in Charleston. I, I was horrified at the shooting itself, of course, and heartbroken, but I was terrified about what that response might have been because it could have been so bad, and it wasn't. It wasn't pleasant, and nothing after an event like that should ever be 
mistaken for, considered pleasant, but it was incredibly inspiring the way that people came together in the aftermath of that event. And I think we're seeing that to some extent after Dallas as well. Um, looking at pictures and reading about stories about uh, Black Lives Matter protesters, talking to, communicating, and, and supporting uh, members of the Dallas Police Department in the aftermath of that horrifying tragedy. So my optimism comes in this way. We have a really bad history, but it's one that we have gotten over to some extent in some places. We have some shining examples. We have agencies uh, like Camden, New Jersey, and Richmond, California, and Decatur, Georgia, and others. Things are not perfect there. And certainly, I think that mistakes that even those cities are living in what's called a post-racial world are completely mistaken. But those communities and police agencies have a much healthier relationship overall than I think is, is often the norm, particularly in, in larger cities. We also have some examples from other places around the world, uh, including some places that, that make our issues look relatively tame. Um, Northern Ireland, the IRA and the Northern Irish police were in a state that was the next best thing to open warfare. Now, in this country, we tend to throw out the words war far too often, in my view, war on cops, war on drugs, war on crime, and so on. But in Northern Ireland, there really was a war. There were explosives, assassinations, um, heavy weaponry being used. And it was not at all a, a, a pleasant or, or peaceful process. But even despite that history, another long history of tension, they got to a point where they were able to come together, slowly but steadily. And things are not perfect today in Northern Ireland by, by any report, but they are so much better than they were. So examples like that, like the, the techniques that we've seen used in actual war zones uh, for people to come together, I think are, are, are very much a, a real possibility in this country as well. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with law professor uh, Seth Stoughton from the University of South University of South Carolina. Is that the original USC? Is would that would that be a? I know you. I know, I know you're a little sensitive about that. Is that is that the USC that we're talking about? Uh, you know, I will say that it is, but I understand that there is some uh, some, some litigation by that other USC <laughs> that prevents us from using those initials quite as as often as we might want. That doesn't surprise me because the lawsuit's the answer to everything, right? That it does, sure seems to be. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, Seth wrote a wonderful piece in the Washington Post uh, recently about the tension that exists between police and African-American communities in general. But while those two communities, Seth, are the most prominent, at least historically speaking, that you just touched on, is this distress that, that you raise exclusive to the police versus African-American community? But in your view, is it, a, is it a larger distrust that permeates our culture? Oh, I think it's very much a larger distrust. I think in part it's a a symptom or a part of a, a very long history of racial tension, and particularly between whites and blacks. Um, talking about race is very difficult for a number of reasons. Um, it's very easy as a white male, for example, to feel defensive, uh, to want to try to, to distance myself from the past and, um, and, and insulate myself from the discomfort of, um, uh, of history, 
that, that contemplating some of the racial history causes. That has nothing to do with the, the type of conversation or, or the, the people involved in the conversation. It's just not always a comfortable thing to contemplate. Well, it's not a comfortable thing because race is really complicated and because race is, is marred by distrust. Uh, I don't feel like I'm I'm expressing that as as well as I'd like to. No, I, I think I, no, I think I think you are. I think I mean I think the you just touched on it that that the difficulty that we all of us uh, experience. And, and in fact, um, I'll follow up with you because I, I I think I think you're definitely onto something because you know one of the things that it seems to me that both sides of the debate to that piece, that discomfort piece that you were referring to, it seems like the voices that we hear, those that emanate at least the loudest. The subtext of those discussions, unfortunately, seems to me to discredit the opposing side more so than really engage the subject at hand, which you were talking about earlier. And I was wondering, how do you see that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, the, the, the fact of it is, as humans, we have a strong preference for simple answers. And when we're talking about something that is as complicated as policing, or even more as complicated as race relations, there really no, there, there are no simple answers. And that makes us really uncomfortable. And we tend to fall back to asserting our own position and attacking other positions that do not align well with ours. And I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you two examples, both very relevant to the policing context, and I'm, I'm going to characterize, hopefully fairly, um, two sort of statements or, or, or arguments by uh, Black Lives Matter and by, by Blue Lives Matter, if I can use those terms. There are, there is a perception in the Black Lives Matter movement that officers are um, targeting blacks, that they do not value their lives, uh, that violence is an easy solution, a, a normal part of that interaction. And unfortunately, the response from um, the Blue Lives Matter community tends to be, well, no, it's not. That's not true. Now, let's flip the coin a little bit. There's a perception in the Blue Lives Matter community that officers are under attack, that they are besieged, that these are the most dangerous times that anyone is aware of, that they're being targeted. And the response from the Black Lives Matter community tends to be, well, that's not true. You're wrong. I, I don't know about you. I've been married 14 years now, going on 14 years, and I've had my share of arguments with my, my wife. But typically, we don't solve the argument. We don't resolve the issue by just attacking each other's facts. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm not a psychotherapist, Seth, but I would probably venture to say if you just led with you're wrong, you're probably a n not going to be married that long. That's yeah, just, that's yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, hey, I'll be very honest. That comes up at some point, usually early on in our... But it's not uh, the in, end of the conversation, discussion. right? <laughs> yeah, but you can't stop there, right? And that's what I think we're seeing now. We're seeing a lot of our perception of the world is correct and yours is wrong. And we're seeing it on both sides. And it's not healthy, right? Here's the thing about the police-community relationship. It's like a marriage. It takes work. It takes communication. It takes effort. It takes commitment. But here's how it's not like a marriage. You can't get a divorce. Police community uh, relations are permanent relations. 
there are going to be police in the United States. We might have individual departments that are dissipated or reformed, as, as happened in Camden, but we are going to have police. We are going to have to manage that relationship because police officers in the community cannot go their separate ways. You mentioned Richmond, California, and, and, and you also mentioned Richmond in your, your recent piece. And um, there's probably not a linear comparison between police departments in Richmond and, say, Ferguson, Missouri. One of the things that struck me, though, um, that I think part of the challenge that has been for the Black Lives Matter movement is, and I don't know whether this is intentional or unintentional, so I don't want to put words in their mouth, but in effect, uh, at least publicly, it seems like they're trying, their efforts are trying to nationalize something that has essentially thousands of local entities. Uh, is that, I, am I overstating that fact, or how do you see that? No, I, I think that's right, and I think it's um, I think it's on two different levels. So on on the first level, we tend to see the police as the police, this monolithic entity, right? Which is why when there's a shooting in Ferguson or in um, Baton Rouge, it affects police community relations everywhere, because that's that's the way we tend to look at the police. But of course, in this country, policing is hyper localized. We have 18,000 different police agencies uh, at last count. Most policing, 15,000 agencies worth of policing, is at a local level, 12,000 city police departments and 3,000 county sheriff's offices. So looking at them as a monolithic entity is actually quite, quite wrong, right? Agencies do things very, very differently. There are some very progressive uh, police chiefs who are incredibly receptive to and responsive to community concerns. And then there are others that are much less so. But the reason that I think, and this gets me into the second dimension of why we tend to nationalize, um, we also tend to nationalize because that's where we see solutions happening universally. The, the thought is that it may be just more effective to really push the focus at this national stage because if we get a national fix, if we can get that national fix, then it will affect policing everywhere. But a national fix for policing is really, really difficult. Uh, in many cases, local efforts may be more targeted and often more effective than focusing on national. And I'm not saying that either one isn't important. I think they're both important. But there's a very different thing between um, writing your federal congressman or senator about policing and actually going to your local elected official or your local police executive and saying, I have some issues, my community has some issues that we need to address. We're talking with uh, Stoughton Law Professor at the USC University, University <laughs> of South Carolina. Those are my words, not his. So the other USC save your lawsuits. Uh, that, those are my words. So I'm not putting Seth on the hook. But I, at this point, I'd like to uh, present um, two recent scenarios um, to you uh, on the heels of the Dallas tragedy in, in particular. Sure. The, the first one, um, I saw several individuals, and I, and I don't know if it was intentional, but it, it just struck me. Uh, they talked about, um, they were discussing the deaths of the five police officers in Dallas. And when they concluded their uh, lament and, and what seems like genuine you know, concern, they came back with that convenient conjunction, but, which perhaps unwittingly suggested the deaths of the officers, while tragic, uh, was not as tragic as uh, Mr. Sterling and, and Mr. Castile as where the other black lives have died at the hands of police. And I was wondering, how do you see that? 
I think we need to reject that, to be honest. I, I think that we, in order to advance the type of conversation that I think we need to have, we need to acknowledge and and very much be committed to the idea that we can believe very strongly that black lives matter, that uh, police violence can be and has been an issue that has to be addressed. And we can still, at the same time, firmly believe that what happened in Dallas, the assassination of five officers there, was contemptible, horrible, tragic action. That I don't think you have to put a but in between those, those two things. I think if your heart does not weep for the five officers and their families, and if your heart does not weep for the family of uh, Philando Castile or Walter Scott, then you are not looking at this series of events from a human perspective. I think we have to, at the core of both of these, there has to be a value of, of human life. I, I really dislike the, the buts. And I've, I've seen that, by the way, on, on both sides. I don't want mm-hmm. to uh, sound like it, it is targeting uh, either, either side in this debate. Um, I think there have been multiple examples of officers who say, yes, there are bad apples, yes, there are, there are some issues, but, and there are examples of folks who say, well, I wish the officers uh, hadn't been killed, uh, but I can understand why. Well, you know what, I, I can't understand why, and I don't think we should be understanding why. I think we should be condemning bad acts without trying to um, insulate ourselves. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I, I don't understand. I don't understand the the butts here. Um, and so I have another scenario. So that, that was the first scenario that we sure. call we'll call that the butt scenario. And you are actually right to point out that, that both sides have it. I was um, it recently came up for me with with Black Lives Matter, but it, it definitely happens on both sides. But here's the other scenario. Uh, the second scenario comes uh, from former Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who offered that Black Lives Matter was quote inherently racist and anti-American. And I'm wondering, based on the article you just wrote for, uh, for the Washington Post, how helpful are those thoughts and conveyed to the piece that you just wrote and what you were trying to convey in that piece? They're, they're so far from helpful that I have trouble even articulating how unhelpful they are. Um, it, it's when, when the five officers were, were shot in Dallas, um, one of my reactions was that this is one of the least helpful things. This is one of those events that is going to set back efforts to resolve these longstanding issues. And what I heard uh, Giuliani's comments, I had a very similar reaction. That doesn't help. That doesn't bring anyone to the table. And in fact, you've just pushed them away from the table and out of the room and maybe down the hall. That's an impossible comment for anyone to engage with you know, if if uh, it, it's it's almost a it's almost a it's it's almost a parody, right? It's it's almost a, a joke. Um, if if we get into an argument and I throw down the well, that's just un-American card, right? Usually that's satire. So to hear it meant seriously was appalling. In no way is that going to help actually bring people together or bridge what is uh, a, a very real divide. It, it sort of goes back to the uh, you're wrong comment with your wife, right? That just it's just it sort of goes back to that. 
Yeah, it, it it absolutely does, and that and that too, by the way, is something that I think is is a problem on both sides, right? Uh, I, I've written previously that when the conversation starts with the statement, "Police are corrupt and racist," you have just ended that conversation before it began, because officers are going to shut down. They are certainly not going to want to engage with that. And the same thing is true when you make a statement like. Black Lives Matter is racist and un-American uh, and in favor of the murder of officers. Well, good luck pulling anyone to the table when you've just attacked them. We need to be doing much less in the way of attacking and much more in the way of actually listening to each other's concerns, right? And by the way, I do want to make the point that some of what people believe is factually wrong. There are, and I'm not, I'm not going to go into detail, although I can if you'd like, uh, but some of the perceptions that we have do not match up with what numbers, what statistics we actually have. But when we're talking about this, this um, resolving these issues, it doesn't matter what the numbers are. We don't need to address the numbers. It's not a matter of having enough data that we can prove our positions right. We need to address the underlying perceptions and the frustrations. We don't need to validate them as true, but we do need to respect them as sincere and do what we can to address those perceptions and the causes of those perceptions. And arguing your facts are wrong is not a good way to do that. Um, I felt this way reading um, your piece, and I think it, you've sort of amplified it here in our, in our conversation, but... Isn't a lot of this, doesn't a lot of this, you sort of touched on it earlier, have to do with our sort of collective arrested development surrounding race and racism? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It, let, me, let, me, let me give you an example. I was talking to someone about this, about this recently, and they, they used this example. Um, I, I won't attribute to, it to them because I, I don't want to embarrass them, but I thought it was a wonderful example. Most white folks have at some time been in a part of town that made them uncomfortable. Um, maybe minority community, maybe high crime area, you know, that, that part of town where they look around and they go, wow, I, I feel a little bit out of place here. Um, folks who've traveled internationally might be very familiar with this feeling. They feel like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm not the sort of dominant social force, or I'm not a part of the dominant social force here. That feels odd. It feels uncomfortable. And what I think a lot of um, a lot of people don't don't fully appreciate, a lot of white people don't fully appreciate that for a lot of black people, that's the way that they feel operating in the same spaces that I, as a white man, feel very comfortable in. We've never resolved that. We've never really understood that. So that's one way that our, our, um, as you put it very well, arrested development in the area of um, racism and race relations has played in. It's not that people would or would not agree if they thought about it. We just don't think about it, right, for, for reasons of privilege and for reasons of uh, um, living in the culture that we do. We take things for granted, and taking those things for granted can prevent us from having some of these conversations that may be able to connect us over issues like race and racism. So, where do we go from here? I hope forward. Um, that's, the, that's the big question. We need to make some fundamental changes to the way that we talk and think about race and really to the way that we approach policing. 
Now, two points. One, I focus on the regulation of policing. So my responses, my prescriptions, my thoughts on how to move forward are really focused on policing. But as a society, it's wrong to just focus on policing. The problems that policing plays into are much bigger than addressing policing itself could ever hope to solve. Issues, for example, of economics, of housing policy, of how we use criminal records in the private employment arena, all of that and much, much more are beyond the scope of uh, just policing, but play into this tension that we have between black communities and police communities. So one, we need to look very broadly. Two, when we are focused on policing, we need to look not just within police agencies, but also more broadly about how we as a society um, interact with or, or regulate police agencies. And let me, let me give you an example of what I mean there. I think one of the most damaging things, one of the, the mechanisms that have set up really perverse incentives to policing that has really contributed to a, a, a lot of the problems is evaluating police agencies' performance and police executives' performance based on crime rates. When a police agency is judged based on crime rates, then it incentivizes a type of policing that really tries to stamp down short-term crime rates. But of course, that's exactly the same kind of policing that can lead to a great deal of antagonism with the community. Uh, adversarial policing, aggressive, zero-tolerance style policing. That goes, sort of goes back to the whole Nixonian law and order ethos, right, of the, of the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, that's right. That, that approach that the role of police agencies is predominantly law enforcement, right, is predominantly crime fighting, and therefore that's what we should evaluate them on. That entire approach has actually caused more problems, in my view, than it's, than it's helped resolve. And that's not a policing issue. We can't go to a police department and say, just change some policies, just do some more training, and, and this will be solved. That has nothing to do with police and everything to do with what we as society are expecting from police. So to some extent, we need to change our expectations. And at that point, we can begin to change other things within law enforcement uh, that can affect the culture of law enforcement itself. So abandoning, for example, the, the uh, predominant role of officers as crime fighters and getting beyond the identity of policing as a predominantly law enforcement institution and instead realizing that it, like many other public service institutions, should really be about protecting civilians from unnecessary indignity and harm. But I don't think we're going to get to that point and the policies and the training that we need to make that happen until we first make some broader corrections about what counts societally as success or failure at a police department. Does that, does that make sense? It makes, it makes perfect sense. You know, what, what, you, what you have done, is which is consistent with the public morality, is that it, you didn't answer the, all the questions definitively. You just gave us more questions that we, got, that we have to get off the air now and just sort of grapple with. So <laughs> you've given us a lot 
um, to chew on. But 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 frankly, um, when I read your piece in the Washington Post, I, this is why I wanted to have you on because I think that these issues are far more complicated. And what you just shared with us, um, it goes beyond policing. It goes beyond Black Lives Matter. There are some sociological and some public policy issues that, that go well beyond law enforcement that are, are, are critical if we're going to change this piece and, and get to that where do we go from here that you just articulated. So Seth Stoughton, um, professor, University of South Carolina, the USC, I want to thank you for being on the public morality today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Seth Stoughton. Coming up, political roundup with North Carolina Representative Ed Haynes, Jr., for a North Carolina political roundup. Joining us is Representative Ed Haynes, Jr. Representative Ed Haynes, welcome to the public rally. Thanks, sir. Now, the last time you were on, you told us North Carolina would be in play in the general election. So far, your prediction has bared fruit. Why? We have, a, we have some interesting candidates out there. And so from a national standpoint, you have Donald Trump, you know, being the character that he is. Obviously, he's done a lot of things that nobody thought he would be able to do nationally. And I think that has played into this uh, discontent uh, that many people around the nation have with where our government is uh, right now, where they, uh, where they think it is uh, right now. And uh, that has shown itself to uh, be the same case with, the, with his constituency in North Carolina. So I think we're at a dead heat on the presidential side in North Carolina. Um, and I think we're, uh, we're in play with some Democrats that I think uh, we didn't necessarily think we would be in North Carolina right now. Deborah Ross has shown herself to be more than capable. Uh, and uh, she is giving uh, a... a uh, what is this, Richard Burr's 14th year or so in the, uh, in the United States Congress, giving him a heck of a run. And I think the same thing is happening uh, with our uh, treasurer candidate and Dan Blue. And uh, we're making up ground pretty quickly on our governor as well, uh, So uh, with Roy Cooper. So, yes, North Carolina is absolutely in play. Well, you know, that's interesting because, you know, um, as you know, as you know well, that um, right now the uh, state legislature is heavily Republican. Yes. But yet, but yet— President Obama won this state in 2008, yeah. and he was lost in a close one to Romney. So, how is it read at the at the state legislative level? But the, but at the same time, it's clearly a purple state in yeah. general. Yeah, well, I think it's because Republicans got a little bit of a jump on us when uh, they recognize that all local pol- all politics is in fact local politics. And so, in 2010, or really starting around 2008, they started concentrating on school boards, county commissioners, city councils. And started concentrating on knocking those areas off locally uh, because they are at a real disadvantage from a demographic standpoint nationally. Uh, they haven't figured, they haven't been able to figure that out, you know, quite yet. Uh, but that is how we ended up in the spot that we're in because we stopped paying attention to exactly what we have been we saying. Being we being Democrats. We being Democrats stopped paying attention uh, to the local politics and they got the leg up on us. And uh, so really what we've been able to do is hold on to the national politics. And I think I, I think we're in a good position to continue that uh, for some time forward. I think we've won the popular vote. Democrats have won the popular vote, uh, I think, five out of the last six elections yes. or four out of five or something like that. Five out of six if you count Gore. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
So uh, counting gore, yeah. yeah. So so we're uh, we're we're in good shape nationally, but we have a lot of work to do locally. Do you also just staying with the um, national election for just a moment? Do you think not only in North Carolina but other states that there's going to be that down pressure ballot? Like uh, it's hard. It may be more challenging for Burr, but because Trump's the top of the ticket. Do you think that people will say, okay, I'm not going to vote for Trump, if in fact that does happen, but I'm still going to vote for Burr? Yeah, it's interesting because North Carolina has always been a state where if we, uh, if, we had, if, we, if we voted for a Republican president, we had a Democratic governor or vice versa. North, that's kind of how North Carolina has worked over the years. And North Carolina is much different today uh, than it was 20 years ago because we have so many transplants into the state. Uh, so do I think there's going to be pressure down ticket? I, I think that remains to be seen simply because we don't know how Donald Trump is going to change or if he's going to change for the general, if he's going to try to pivot back more to the middle. If he tries to pivot back more to the middle, then I don't think you'll see as much pressure down ticket uh, if he's convincing in his in his strategy. But if he continues uh, the full out assault the way he's been going uh, thus far, uh, yeah, I think you could see some I think you could see some races tighten up that perhaps really shouldn't be getting as tight as they are. Right. And we, and we saw that. Uh, what was it? Indiana, that a state that should have gone Republican mm-hmm. voted a guy who was so far out there. The Democrats picked up uh, Indiana. Sure. Um, what uh, impact? Does, you, does the general election have, and I mean not only with, with uh, Trump and Clinton, but also with those down-ticket races, what uh, uh, impact does HB2 have on that? HB2 is, is going to have an impact uh, everywhere, but I think you'll see it more in the state races. I think you'll see it more in our council of state races, treasurer, uh, lieutenant governor, uh, in the different House and North Carolina Senate races than you will uh, in the national races because it is it has been so heavily focused on local control and what and, and our respect or disrespect. Uh, for that local control in Charlotte and their ability to make their laws and regulations the way they want them uh, in their city, um, I think what you're gonna, what you have seen so far uh, is the national media and the national uh, drumbeat has been constant uh, against the state in terms of the overreach that the uh, that the state legislature uh, took. I think it's arguable that uh, Charlotte. Uh, went a step too far. I think that's arguable, but I don't think it's arguable at all that the General Assembly, uh, my colleagues in the General Assembly, absolutely had a knee-jerk reaction that was unnecessary and uncalled for, and it certainly cost us money and costing us business and jobs, and that that really just cannot continue if we're going to keep moving forward. Do, do you have a sense of uh, what the economic impact has been on North Carolina? Right. Well, I, I think, y- you know, what we hear so what the HRC would tell you is that it's been a billion dollars, a couple of billion dollars. I think what our Treasury uh, has come back with is that probably by the end of the year, several hundred million dollars uh, in terms of lost business revenue, uh, concert revenue and these types of things. Uh, can the state absorb that short term? Uh, sure, we can. But uh, certainly we don't want to continue to keep losing concerts, losing all-star games if that were to happen. Because I think if you lose the all-star game and we continue the track we're going, the next one to go uh, is the PGA Tour. Uh, Mm -hmm. at Quail Hollow. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the next one to fall. And then if we continue to stick where we are, uh, you're going to really start putting entire sports franchises in jeopardy in this state because they will leave. So so let's let's stay with the All-Star game for a minute since since you raised that. Beyond the economic impact, is that the kind of thing that sort of 
almost puts a permanent black eye on the state if you lose the All-Star game? I mean, how, how important is that? I don't know if it's a permanent black eye, but certainly, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a five-year swelling, you know, of the, of the face. And uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a very big deal because I think it's something that will always come up whenever another sport is talking about bringing their All-Star game or an event uh, to your state. Uh, I think what we're going to ultimately have to do uh, in this situation, uh, we're going to have to continue to chip away at HB2. Hope, hopefully, that they repeal another 90%, you know, of what's left. And should they not, we need to win these seats back, and we need to make sure that we have a PR campaign out there, letting the rest of the country know that North Carolina is truly open for business and open to everybody. For well, business. speaking of open for business, I know that you um, not long ago went um, Southeast Asia. Yes, and uh, so. What is the potential impact? I mean, uh, how aware are they of, of laws, you know, like HB2? And th- and wow, well, yeah. I, to be honest with you, um, I don't think I don't I don't think the Southeast Asian culture uh, is is absolutely the most accepting uh, to you know transgender right. and LGBT community. So I don't think what we do in North Carolina regarding HB2, uh, good or bad, has any impact on them one one way or the other. What they talked about uh, constantly was the fact that quite literally they cannot feed their people. And this is in Singapore, this is in Tokyo, Japan, and they are curious as to why North Carolina with a $22 billion budget isn't doing, why we aren't doing the things that we need to do to open ourselves to trade with these countries when we have uh, pork farms, chicken farms, we produce exactly the type of goods that their people consume in huge quantity. And so why don't we have a deep water port in North Carolina that can handle their super tankers? Not the not just the regular tankers, but their super tankers that come in and they can do trade with us. Why don't we have that? Uh, we have an economic impact report that that shows us that because we don't have this deep water port, we are literally cutting ourselves out of two and a half, three billion dollars worth of business a year uh, with uh, Southeast Asia. And so that's something that we have to look at and figure out, you know, why on earth we're letting all this business go to Virginia and South Carolina and letting it bypass North Carolina. So you, you raise an interesting point that so often, you know, we're, we're driven by, you know, the, the, the issue du jour. Mm-hmm. But a lot of what you do and a lot, of, a lot of the work that you do in the legislature isn't really sexy stuff. Like, you can't run Mm-mm. on these tankers no. to, get, to, get, to get reelected. No. But, but, that, but those are the kinds of things, infrastructure, things aren't sexy, but those are the kind of things that are really the lifeblood of the state. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and, and you know, if I, if I ever decide to run statewide, then certainly I, I have learned so much from my colleagues uh, in eastern North Carolina because their entire push is infrastructure uh, development so that they can actually have business come through the state. So I've learned about transportation deals that were supposed to bring four-lane highway from the coast all the way through Winston-Salem on Highway 158 that has been on the books for 30 years and never happened. Why? You know, why, why, is that, why is that the case? Why have we basically isolated, you know, one part of the state from the rest, from being able to connect with the rest of the state? They have to drive all the way through Raleigh to get to Charlotte, to get to the banking capital of the state, when if we had completed this project years and years ago, uh, we would have more business there, we would have a more, uh, a more robust community in eastern North Carolina, better education, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're exactly right. These are the type of issues that you learn about, you get interested in, and all of a sudden you, you think you're doing all you can as a state, and you have foreign leaders coming out and people out in eastern North Carolina saying, we have 20 miles of interstate highway that's never been completed. 
that we were supposed to get that's been on the books, why hasn't been completed, but we're building everything we can in Charlotte and Raleigh. So these are the types of things that we look at all the time that I think are of interest to the vast majority of the state of North Carolina, but people just don't know because they don't hear about them because we're isolated from what most of the state is. And most of the state is not urban. Most of the state is rural, absolutely rural farmland. And I think we kind of get separated from that uh, in our in our urban centers. Uh, any chance... Uh Using your crystal ball, any chance that um, the North Carolina legislature turns Democratic uh, in the next two years? I think that I think that's a stretch. I can tell you frankly that we have some very we have some very strong candidates. Um, our best opportunity to pick up any number of seats will be if HB two remains an issue. Will be if Donald Trump. Uh, absolutely goes off the rails, mm-hmm. uh, then I think we'll have a, a great opportunity to pick up, uh, you know, eight to eight to ten seats. I think as it stands right now, if people moderate, which is why I think you saw the movement on HB2 uh, to give back access to state court for discrimination cases, uh, if folks continue to moderate that way, then I think we, we have a good chance to pick up maybe four seats, and it's going to take multiple sessions. It'll be through 2020 before we get the majority back. Talk, talk about that moderation for a minute. T- talk about what they've done and what they have not done uh, on HB2. Yeah, so what, so what basically happened at the end of this session is they struck an agreement with the Chamber of Commerce to allow access uh, for discrimination cases back in the state court. Before, they, before that, they had completely removed your access to file a discrimination case in, in, uh, in state court. Well, what they did is they gave they they returned the access, but they cut uh, the statute of limitations by two thirds. And so I refused to vote for the bill. Uh, I I said, absolutely not. You're not going to give me one third of justice. You're going to give me full justice. And this is what we had for a number of years with three years. Uh, We had a three year window to file these discrimination cases in protected class matters. And they came back with one year, which was a nod to business. Uh, because the business people obviously don't, obviously don't want you to have a three-year statute of limitations. Um, and so that was a nod to business. And uh, so I refused to vote for it, knowing full well the measure was going to pass because mm-hmm. it wouldn't have come through the floor, you know, were it not going to pass. And so that is basically what they did. But they still left the bathroom provision in place. Um, uh, and they and they and they left some of the other nuances. The, how about the minimum wage? Is that yeah, still? Yeah, the minimum wage piece is, is, is also still in place as well. Um, so... Just for the record, the, the the minimum wage piece that we're talking about is that they capped um, the, the local municipalities can't exceed what the state. Correct. Okay. Yeah, local munis- municipalities cannot uh, determine minimum wage for contractors coming into their city to do business. Okay. So they they they've capped all that. Now, what happens if they uncap that? Uh, then I think you'll see a little bit more movement, a little bit more ability for Democrats to to win some seats. Uh, because we will have shown our ability to, you know, to force change in some of these tough areas. Uh, I don't think what you're going to see right now with HB2 is any movement on on the bathroom provision. I think uh, the president pro tem of the Senate, Phil Berger, has pretty much dug in his heels there as well as the governor. Why is that such a lightning rod? Uh, because it's an issue. Well, really, it's a lightning rod because it's a strike at the president of the United States for his executive order. Uh, to open up uh, gay marriage uh, as as a constitutionally protected right across the across the country, and so that is really all this bathroom provision uh, was in the first place was just a swipe uh, a swipe at him, um, and and they obviously were able to were able to do it you know very uh, very effectively. I think what we had though in North Carolina is that we did not we did not have a problem. 
uh, in this state. Uh, when the NASCAR boys and the Carolina Panthers say, we don't have a problem where people with where people are going to the bathroom currently, why are you messing with the bill? I think you really ought to take heed to what these guys are doing. They understood it was bad for business, and uh, our own state legislatures and uh, our own uh, governor did not recognize it was bad, to, bad for business, but I think we're going we're gonna to see that uh, they were wrong. In the few minutes we have remaining, um, any thoughts on the, um, at least in the last 10 years, unprecedented um, days of violence that we had last week uh, in uh, Baton Rouge, outside of Minneapolis, in Dallas. Any, any thoughts on that you'd like to share? Yeah, it's crazy. And I, and I think you've seen, uh, it's crazy what we see happening. But, you know, I think in the African-American community, I think what we what we understand is that these type of interactions have been happening for a number of years. And it's just a, a matter of uh, our broader community now witnessing them on video and having to make a call of whether they uh, want to support cops or whether they want to support citizens or whether there is some ground in the middle uh, where we need to you know, be judging this situation on. I, I think you've seen uh, over the last uh, four or five days a movement by myself and Senator Joel Ford to bring officers and our agency heads together in Raleigh uh, to discuss this issue and start looking on a blueprint uh, for putting an end to this at least or giving North Carolina the ability to best avoid these types of interactions. Uh, we're going to be going on a five-city tour across the state. Uh, to bring these ideas together and hopefully put together a report in the next seven months with suggestions for uh, improvement of police relations and community relations. I think we also have to look at how uh, our, our police officers are interacting with the community from a training standpoint and actually supporting our police officers when they say 99% of their folks are doing it the right way and supporting that and protecting the good officers from those who aren't doing it the right way. And so we're going to be doing legislation, frankly, uh, that will ensure that our great police officers who are out there working as hard as they can are protected and are not uh, brought down by officers who refuse to act in a professional way. You'll see that legislation uh, forthcoming in the next uh, three or four months. Representative Ed Haynes, I want to thank you for being on the public rally today. Thank you. That was North Carolina Representative Ed Haynes. Coming up, my closing remarks. Now, for my closing remarks. Imagine a major automobile accident occurred at an intersection. On one corner stood a police officer. On another corner stood an attorney. On the adjacent corner stood a priest. And on the other corner, a physician. They all clearly saw the accident. But what's the likelihood that the stories would match? Though possible, it's unlikely. Why? Each stands on a different corner with a different perspective along with a different social location. None are wrong, but none possess the whole truth. While the aforementioned scenario could apply to many issues critical to our common life, it is acutely appropriate when examining last week's violence. Just when it appeared that the FBI report stating no charges would be brought against Hillary Clinton would dominate the week's news cycle, the next day, 
America was introduced to a reprisal of an ongoing saga where a black man was killed by a white police officer. The tragic footage of Alton Sterling being gunned down at point-blank range in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, was troubling enough. But before the nation could utter, here we go again, there were the images of Philando Castile slumped over in his car, dying from a police officer's bullet just outside of Minneapolis for the nation to witness. As if this were some cynical infomercial, absurdity then cries out, but wait, there's more. The result was a cruel inverted order where five police officers were killed and six wounded at the conclusion of a peaceful rally in Dallas, Texas. While I reject linear comparisons of history, 2016 is not the reincarnation of 1968 as some would offer. I do believe we are reliving a question posed in the title of Martin Luther King Jr.'s last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? It is a valid question that we all must grapple. But to do so means leaving the street corner of our familiarity that is pregnant with preconceived notions endowed with insularity and assumption. For last week's violence, based on the contemporary narrative, presented a cruel irony where the roles of victim and victimizer were proven interchangeable. We're drowning in the feeble pursuit of attempting to make sense of the senseless. Are we placing too much emphasis on what we know and not nearly enough on what we don't know? So as King asked, where do we go from here? As long as opposing sides stay entrenched in the certainty of their particular truth, and that shapes the current narrative, then the only outcome is chaos. To realize community, we must first embrace the words of Aristotle who said, It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. This means courageously walking across the street to see the opposing view. This is the only path that leads to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.